if the Israel-Palestinian situation has been apparently intractable in the past, how much more now? The brutal attack by Hamas on October the 7th, the brutal response by Israel, laying effective siege to the Gaza Strip, thousands dead on both sides as Israel pursues its stated goal of destroying Hamas. Fears of the conflict escalating, of course, as well, with Hezbollah on Israel's northern border with Lebanon. Spencer Ackerman is an award-winning writer for The Nation. He is the author of a book called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And he's with me now from New York. Hi, Spencer. Hello, Kim. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, we just heard the head of Hezbollah, or one of the heads of Hezbollah, saying the only thing that can stop a regional war is a ceasefire by Israel. Um, that may or may not be the case, but that is not going to happen, is it? No. Um, in fact, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, took an opportunity to make that clear after a meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Over the past 48 hours in the United States, there has been a sudden openness within the Biden administration, not for a ceasefire, but for something nebulous that it calls humanitarian pauses to permit um, greater amounts of food and perhaps fuel uh, and medical relief to breach the siege. And that was something that resulted from a lot of activist pressure um, that, you know, wants more than humanitarian pauses, but wants a ceasefire, as well as surely the Biden team's calculations of what this is doing uh, to its chances for re-election. And the result of all this was to come to a position whereby um the administration was for the first time open to something that stops well short of a ceasefire, but is just like temporary pauses um, in in the bombing and we would presume as well the invasion. Lincoln brought that to Netanyahu and Netanyahu straight out rejected it. Um, if there is not any consequence for that, the United States is, of course, about to appropriate $14 billion dollars. Uh, for weapons for Israel, then there's no reason why the Netanyahu unity government wouldn't further reject any additional um, pressures from the Biden administration, any entreaties from the Biden administration, anything like that for a full ceasefire or anything beyond that. I mean, you can you can presumably understand why Netanyahu is so hell bent on pummeling Gaza. Yes, most certainly. But I mean, there's no question. There's no question about the brutality of the Hamas attack. There's no question about the the visceral mm, anxiety of Israelis about their existential situation in that part of the world. It's it was completely lodged. Did Hamas know? Did Hamas anticipate? Is Netanyahu doing what Hamas wanted him to? So first, I have to respond to that. I'm Jewish. 
I have loved ones in Israel. I have people who I love who have loved ones in Israel. I understand fully uh, the anguish that Israelis feel, the fear that they feel. Does that justify the devastation of Gaza, the calling not of Hamas, but of Palestinians? I, I think that they're on the part of responsible policymakers has to be pressure on Israel first to stop and, you know, call a ceasefire, release the hostages. And furthermore, should Israel insist on continuing with some military response, a, a forcing of Netanyahu's hand as to what the plan for that will be, how the plan can be achieved, how the plan can be achieved in terms of not causing the overwhelming devastation of Gaza. We are, at, as of this conversation, talking about a you know, three-week war that has killed over 9,000 Palestinians, including thousands of children. So I, I, I have to... I have to just, you know, say that here when when you're asking about um, whether I can understand this response. I'm also an American and a New Yorker. I lived through 9-11. I know what bloodlust feels like. I know what that sort of fear feels like. As to whether Hamas is playing into Netanyahu's hands or um, anticipated all of this, I think one of the great lessons I have from about 20 years of national security reporting, including um, uh, reporting in Iraq and Afghanistan while those wars were raging is that miscalculation is a part of war that plays a greater role than we often appreciate. And there has been some reporting that's come out over the past several weeks that suggests that Hamas may not have anticipated a response as total as the one that Israel is inflicting right now. So I would be cautious about suggesting that Hamas has planned this perfectly, that Netanyahu is is playing directly into Hamas's hands and so forth. Um, I think this might be a more chaotic and miscalculated situation than that. You've examined the conundrum of why, when President Biden warned Israel not to repeat America's mistakes in uh, a mist of bloodlust, as you just described it. Why, then, he is supporting Israel as it does exactly that? Can you talk me through your understanding of that conundrum? So, first, the people who make policy in the Biden administration are the people who made the lower-tier um, policy uh, in the Obama administration. One of their major takeaways from that experience in the Obama administration is that antagonizing Israel, as um, President Obama did, uh, perhaps not you know deliberately so, but nevertheless, the relationship was, was somewhat acrimonious, um, won't yield the United States anything it wants in the Middle East. And so they have gone to great pains um, to ensure that whatever disagreements they have with Israel happen behind closed doors this time. And this has set as well a form of path dependency inside the Biden administration, whereby it does not look like they anticipated 
that there would be the kinds of reactions that they have seen all around the world from the region to the streets of major cities in the United States. So you're saying that the United States never learnt from its experience. Does anybody ever learn from history or do they always persuade themselves that this time it's different? Well, the Biden administration, I think in general, the United States, not just the Biden administration, but certainly the Biden administration as well, has simply memory hole, relegated to um, the memory hole, um, the searing experience of the war on terror, which I have to point out is still ongoing in terms of most of its authorities, institutions, and even operations. The Afghanistan war is over, but the United States still has 200, I'm sorry, still has uh, 2,500 troops in Iraq, 900 in Syria. Um, We have now seen um, today confirmation from the Pentagon that uh, one of the major tools of the US war on terror over the past generation, um, the MQ-9 Reaper drone, um, is now over this is now in the skies over Gaza um, in a surveillance and not strike capacity, they say. Um, but nevertheless, so the Biden administration, like most in um, policymaking circles um, in both the Democratic and Republican parties, have never been forced to reckon with exactly um, what the devastation of the war on terror is. It is obscure in the United States. Um, that at least 900,000 people are dead because of America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those figures come from the Costs of War Project at Brown University, and those figures are, by their own declaration, uh, rather conservative ones. Um, So there has also been no accountability for most of the malefactors of the war on terror um, in policymaking circles, both Democratic and Republican. And so accordingly, it would be natural to operate as if there are no real applicable lessons of the war on terror at stake here, and instead treated as something of a hectoring throwaway line from Biden to Netanyahu saying, you know, be cautious. Yeah. You said something interesting. You said that, I mean, Iran is the, is the, is the, is supposed to be the puppeteer behind Hezbollah. Uh, Hamas, um, has denied, everybody's denied Iranian Hezbollah links with the Hamas attack. But nevertheless, Iran is what everybody is worried about. And you have said, Iranian expansion throughout the region was the direct result of the failure of the US occupation of Iraq, which the Bush administration pursued on the delusion of it, yielding regional shockwaves that would benefit US clients and cower adversaries like Iran. The mistakes upon mistakes upon mistakes are clear in hindsight. What do we do now? A ceasefire now, hostage release now, um, is 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 yeah. my short answer. But this it, but is this is is that realistic, Spencer? If people around the world demand it, the pressure is building. I think you can see the pressure starting to work within the Biden administration to the point where their policy is becoming more and more open 
to something um, trending in the direction of of a ceasefire. I think that if people cease to put that pressure, not just on on Biden, but on their other elected officials in Congress, then indeed it won't be realistic. But the Biden people over the past several weeks have been rather attentive uh, to the fact that uh, this war is not polling and U.S. involvement in it is not polling as well as perhaps they thought um, that more people in America uh, support a ceasefire than they expected. And that um, as long as those trends continue and indeed accelerate, then there's no reason why we should just simply accept that it is just not realistic um, to 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 impose a ceasefire. The United States has a tremendous amount of leverage over Israel. What it does not have is a tremendous amount of will to use that leverage. And uh, we will see how that develops. If Israel and Hamas um, agreed to a ceasefire and hostages were released, the, Hamas is still never going to agree that Israel should exist. Hamas is always going to be an existential threat to Israel. How should Israel deal with that? Well, one thing that it needs to do, that Israel needs to do, is something politically seismic to change the dynamic that makes Hamas stronger. And one of the things that we learned from the war on terror, this is a direct lesson of the invasion of Iraq, the occupation of Iraq, is that the thing that comes next, the terrorist group that comes after the one that you set out to destroy while you decimate the country is quite often worse than the one that you came in to confront. Not that the United States actually came into uh, Iraq to destroy um, a terrorist group like Al Qaeda, because a terrorist group like Al Qaeda was not operative um, in the parts of Iraq that Saddam Hussein controlled. But you see what I'm getting uh-huh. at, that it, the creation of ISIS is the result of the Iraq war. Those mistakes compound. Israel's alternative is not one that particularly this government, um, the, you know, a unity government that is you know, based on the most right wing government in its history um, to do, certainly, which is engaged in a negotiated process for the freedom of Palestine. But the past, not just since October, not just the past three weeks, but the past 75 years of Israeli history, all of Israeli history, shows that unless there is a process for the freedom and the dignity of Palestine, the safety of Israelis will be perpetually imperiled. I'm so, I'm sorry to say this to you because I'm sure you're bored with responding to it, but it is a question that is almost inevitable. The Israelis say we have offered a deal to the Palestinians and to the Arabs consistently for decades, and we have consistently been rejected. We've tried and tried and nobody agrees to our existence, and that's why any deal has always been doomed. What is your take on that? It is not entirely groundless. Um, mistakes throughout the, in, you know, the history of negotiations 
between Israelis and Palestinians um, have certainly taken place on both sides. Misconceptions about what uh, negotiations would in fact yield for Palestinians um, have have held you know on on both sides. However, throughout the history of the 1990s Oslo Accord based peace process, the settlement of the West Bank continued throughout. Uh, that more than anything else doomed the two-state solution, doomed the peace process for negotiations from it. More recently, after the second intifada, um, the is something like 15 plus years of Israeli state policy, particularly since Benjamin Netanyahu's second premiership, has been to not have any negotiations at all and simply uh, continue the military occupation of the West Bank, this time uh, with a stranglehold placed on Gaza from a seaborne blockade and from a hardening of an unofficial border after Hamas won an election in 2006. Uh, you will see throughout the Israeli press these last um, three weeks, but also throughout the past 15 years, how the Netanyahu government has been satisfied in having Hamas uh, well-funded uh, being the de facto government of the Gaza Strip, because then it um, then it divides the Palestinian nation and permits the Israelis to say, well, we can't negotiate with the Palestinian Authority because they don't control Gaza, and we're never going to negotiate with Hamas because they are an Islamist terrorist organization that rejects the existence of the state of Israel. And so this situation calcifies. And what ends up happening is what we saw in 2012, in 2018, in 2021, where uh, these tensions explode, and the Israeli military uh, resolves it with violence. And now we are seeing that replay itself on a terrifyingly larger scale in Gaza right now. Are you... All else having failed, yeah. it would behoove everyone in this situation, particularly in Israel and the United States, to recognize that painful negotiations to change the political realities on the ground, to end Israel's occupation of the West Bank, to end Israel's strangulation of Gaza, and to end the broader apartheid regime that Israel places upon the Palestinians is a surer path to peace and security than what we are seeing happen right now. Do you believe that what we are seeing happen right now is in fact genocide? So I mentioned before I'm Jewish. It is the heaviest of all wor words to apply in this situation. I cannot say it is inappropriate to use that word. It, it makes my hands tremble when I think of the history of the industrial scale destruction of the Jewish people in Europe. I fear that this is, in fact, what we are seeing and what we will see the longer that Israel is permitted to assault Gaza. I've just been looking at a story where the IDF has admitted blowing up an ambulance in Gaza 
because they say Hamas uses ambulances to transport guns. And your heart sinks because there's no way through that tit-for-tat. That's why I apologise to you for opening that historic argument who's tried hardest, who's most at fault. So you're saying the United States has to say to Israel, stop it, stop it now, or we will withdraw that funding. Is that it? I mean, that is a step that no American administration has ever taken with Israel. It is nowhere near the position that the Biden administration is currently taking. It's going to be something that were were it to happen uh, would attract tremendous uh, criticism and acrimony, not just from Republicans, but from Democrats as well. But what's the alternative? The alternative is the destruction of Gaza. The alternative is what we are seeing with thousands of children being killed in just three weeks of war. We're we're at over 9,000 Palestinian casualties. Israel has no plan to destroy Hamas. That those, those terms don't actually make sense. Israel, all of the reporting from out of uh, the recent trip that Biden took last week to Israel um, indicates that Israel's war plan is being improvised on the fly. It does not have clear military objectives. Um, Netanyahu talks about it as a long war. Um, How Israel could ultimately uh, destroy Hamas uh, is not something it even feels any pressure to defy. What it can certainly do is kill a unbearable number of Palestinians. And unless the United States finds it within itself, unless people in the United States succeed and prevail upon pressuring um, first the, the Biden administration and then the Netanyahu-led government to stop who who can foresee where this ends up? Context, you said, and in better words than this, explaining the context is seen as anti-Semitic, suggesting that Israel has created these circumstances along the way, is seen as blaming the victim, anti-Semitic. You've seen a rise in anti-Semitic attacks for real in the last week or so. How do you think that's going to pan out, given the polarized and angry state of many of our societies now? Well, I have to say one thing about that, which is that uh, the rise in anti-Semitism is disgusting. The uh, statements that we've seen posted on um, academic targeted messages, message boards, uh, particularly concerning Cornell University, threatening Jews, threatening Jewish students who have nothing to do with Israel, uh, with rape, sexual violence, murder. There was an attempted pogrom at an airport in Dagestan in southern Russia um, from a flight of Israeli civilians. Um, But but in a way, sorry to interrupt you, Spencer, but in a way that that proves the kind of blinkered and focused nature of Netanyahu's response, that the veneer over visceral anti-Semitism is always thin, and it erupts at a moment's notice. And this is why Israel 
has to fight for its right to exist. Do you know that argument? Well, first of all, the what we I hesitate to call it a conflict because of its one-sided nature, but what is at stake between Israel and Palestine is not the it, it, it has it is not about Jews and Muslims. It is about a conflict over Israel demanding full and exclusive sovereignty, political sovereignty over the area between the river and the sea, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. This is not uh, an this, this this is not a religious war. There are many who would like it to be a religious war uh, from inside the United States to Hamas as the material conditions of the Palestinians and their as deteriorate and their aspirations for freedom are choked off by Israel. There is much more pressure um, empowering the more extreme and millenarian voices that wish the conflict to be that. But we have to remember that this is a material conflict over material things with a material solution. And that can't blinker us or blind us. What, what, what I was also trying to say before um, you, you, you pivoted this a little is that we are also seeing in the United States a six-year-old boy in Illinois being murdered for being Muslim. This is not a circumstance where only anti-Semitism is, is on the rise. Violent Islamophobia also is on the rise. Cooler heads have to prevail. A ceasefire is the only humane way to at least begin to change the dynamic that's underway right now. Netanyahu is increasingly unpopular, it seems, for a number of reasons. Um, I'm wondering whether you think that his departure is imminent and is necessary for any I kind of development, huh? I have no idea about that. I, I think you should ask um, people on the ground in Israel about that. All right. Um, Two-state solution, is is that worth a thought anymore? Not since Israel's, you know, uninterrupted 30-year settlement of the West Bank. I don't understand how you could set viable borders um, in the West Bank, considering the current disposition of Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank. I think that was a deliberate murder of the two-state solution to make it no longer viable. Ironically, for those who wished on the Israeli right to destroy the two-state solution, it makes a one-state solution more viable, where what is currently Israel could become a state in which full and equal citizenship exists for everyone who lives between the river and the sea. And I think the degree to which the Israeli right would resist that is going to be quite extreme, um, as well as certain figures on the Israeli left may resist that as well. Um, there is still support for a two-state solution politically, however um, much I question its viability. Um, but nevertheless, the demographic realities on the West Bank, which are a creation of Israel's, um, make a two-state solution perhaps uh, less realistic than a one-state solution at this point. Given the urgency of the situation, finally, Spencer, 
um, and your recommendation that, that what has to be done is the hostages need to be released and a ceasefire needs to take place. What, what can the world do? What can terribly concerned people all over the world do to make the situation better? I mean, you can't even throw money at it at this stage because where does, how does the money help? Do you know what I mean? I think uh, people's organized um, demonstrations, their, their, their outrage, um, their willingness to speak up against the devastation of Gaza and the need to stop this horrific violence to include the immediate unconditional release of the Israelis taken hostage. Um, we can envision from that a prisoner um, exchange uh, also occurring. There's there's evidence from um, Hamas's original statements on October 7th that that perhaps was what they were um, aiming for, um, at least in some you know programmatic way, aside from you know the massacres that it that it committed. Um, you are right. There is a tremendous imbalance of power. There is a long history of the world's governments, um, certainly, um, most importantly, the United States, not listening to these perspectives. But this is ultimately what tools we have uh, if, if, if we're going to have any kind of change in the reality on the ground. The more that uh, people in power hear the anger, the dissatisfaction, and the anguish of decent people worldwide against the devastation of Gaza um, and against the unjust kidnapping of Israeli civilians, against the attacks in the diasporas, on innocent Jews and innocent Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims, then, you know, we, we risk simply consigning these people to their fate. And that would be a breach of solidarity in the most important and devastating of ways. Um, and just finally, finally, how worried are you that there will be a new front uh, in the conflict in southern Lebanon with Hezbollah? Whether it's in southern Lebanon, whether it's elsewhere in the Middle East where U.S. forces are based or stationed, I think we are fooling ourselves if we don't recognize that escalation will happen by inertia because as long as Israel's assault on Gaza continues, the more pressure Hezbollah and the rest of Iran's so-called axis of resistance will feel to do anything about that. And we are in an extremely dangerous period in which all options here for turning not just Gaza, but the entire region into a charnel house are far, far, far riskier than what would happen if a ceasefire is allowed to take hold. Thank you, Spencer. Spencer Ackerman. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning national security reporter, author of a book called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump.